As Brian mentioned, we will be going in, in February, God willing, and then I believe there's talk about a, a larger trip in August uh, as well. And so if you're interested in our ministry to Ghana, you can certainly see Dave Murray for more information. I'd like to uh, uh, spend some time this morning in Luke's Gospel. We'll be in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. You'll find that on page 867 in your pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we would like for you to take that Bible that's in that pew rack as your very own. As you're turning to Luke, I do want to just uh, piggyback on a little bit of what Pastor Josh mentioned to begin this service, that we begin Monday a week of prayer for the persecuted church. If you get the church's emails, you'll begin an email tomorrow morning directing you on how to, you can pray tomorrow and so forth. If you're not getting our emails, there's a clipboard on the welcome desk. You can sign up for that there. This is going to culminate on our service next Sunday as we pray, spend the most of the majority of the service becoming informed about the persecuted church. And as we pray for the persecuted church, we will, and you've heard this again and again, but I, I want you to seriously consider how you might give to the support of the persecuted church. We are going to support widows and orphans, made widows and orphans through the persecution of God's church. We're going to support underground pastors, and we are going to support those who are facing Islamic extremism. And we're going to do that through Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, and International Christian Concerns are the ministries we're going to funnel those monies through. I don't know if you're aware that every month there are 772 acts of violence against Christians. Every month there are 214 Christian buildings and churches are destroyed. Every month there are 322 Christians killed for their faith. And it is happening in 60 countries around this world, which makes up 75% of the world's population. One of those countries is the country of North Korea. I'd like to show you a brief video that we might pray for our brothers and sisters even this morning. Our Father, we do want to lift up the tens of thousands of those who live in this country being 
persecuted for their faith, their love for Jesus. We do ask that you would help them to stand firm, even this very moment. Some perhaps at the point of breaking, some perhaps at the point of denying Christ. We ask that you would minister to them through your spirit, that you might give them strength, that they might be reminded that they worship a Messiah who was crucified for them, and that they too may be willing to bear their cross and deny themselves and follow Jesus. Help them, Father, to love those who hate them, that your gospel may flourish. Help those who are forced to flee, that they might find refuge, that they might find family, believers, that they might find opportunities to proclaim the truth from which they suffer for. Let your church flourish in a very hostile and dangerous place for the gain of those who are perishing and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I'd like to discuss with you Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Hopefully you'll find your way by now, found your way there by now. Luke 9 and verse 18, hear now the word of God. Now it happened that he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Our Father, we're thankful for your word in which we now can consider our Lord and Savior, who he is and the work that he has done. Help us through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Dr. Michael Hart wrote a book called The One Hundred a ranking of the most influential persons in history. Sold almost a million copies. One author says he created the NCAA playoffs of human greatness. There are scientists in his list, generals, leaders, many of whom are tyrants, musicians, inventors, philosophers, and of course, religious leaders. Five Americans make the top 100. Washington at number 26, just ahead of Karl Marx, the Wright brothers, number 28, Jefferson, number 64, interesting to me, John F. Kennedy, number 81, and Henry Ford, number 91. Religious leaders also scored high. Buddha came in fourth, Confucius, fifth, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, number 73. Many Christians, many known for their Christian influence, were on the list. Calvin at 57, Augustine, 54, Martin Luther, number 25. Even biblical figures are there. Moses was the 15th most influential person, evidently, just ahead of Darwin. Paul, the apostle, ranked number six. Interesting. There's a fascinating list. In fact, there are some people I've never even heard of. I don't, you know, Louis Pasteur? Well, he figured out how to inoculate us from diseases. And he also found a way to keep milk from going bad, uh, creating a process named after him. Pasteurization. Louis Pasteur, number 11. 
Of course, we're all interested, aren't we, as to where Jesus ranked. And certainly he's on the list. He, he is, of course, he ranked rather high. He's up there. Jesus comes in number three. He gets the bronze, right? Just, uh, just uh, beating him out is Isaac Newton, who, by the way, worshiped Jesus as his God, which is kind of interesting. And then number one would be Muhammad. And in fact, uh, Dr. Hart wrote that Jesus was the inspiration for the most influential religion in history. And he added, I quote him, Jesus had an extraordinarily impressive personality. Which I, I imagine is true. Um, but, I mean, I don't know if he, it makes you think, did he read the whole story? Because he did create everything, which is kind of impressive. Right? And, and he also rose from the dead after paying for sins and ensuring eternal life for all who believe in them. Which is also, I think, pretty good accomplishment. I wonder, so uh, how would you rank Jesus? You know, where would you put him on the list of the most influential people? Maybe in your life. That would be an interesting question. How, where does he rank in your life? Where does he rank in history? Is he simply a, a religious founder or an impressive personality, or is he something else entirely? It seems to be that's what the question Luke is raising in our study of Luke's gospel, and I know I belabor the point, and, um, but it, it seems important to me that Luke, from Luke chapter 1, really through Luke chapter 8 and into chapter 9, he continues to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? And so when he uh, forgave the paralytic, they asked in chapter 5, who is this man who speaks blasphemes, who can forgive sin but God alone? And then when he forgives the, uh, the, the prostitute, the woman of the city, Simon the Pharisee, asked, who is this man who even forgives sins? And in chapter 8, the apostles on the sea said, who is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. And it was in chapter 9, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw Herod ask amidst the reports of Jesus, who is this about whom I hear such things? And so again and again and again, Luke asks this question, who is he? Who is he? Who is he? And we come here to Luke chapter 9 and we get to verse 20 and it's finally not other people who are asking this, but it is Jesus himself. Who do you think I am? He asks. And I think, in fact, Luke has been bringing us up to Luke 9.20. I think that's the whole thrust of his gospel to this point, asking the question, who is Jesus? Once it's answered, everything in Luke's gospel changed. Then no longer will he be uh, showing us who is Jesus. Rather, he'll be saying, in light of who Jesus is, how should we live? And so from Luke 10 all the way through Luke 18, it's all about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is a disciple of Jesus? And it kind of hinges here on Luke 20, this major turning point as Luke reveals to us not simply who Jesus is, but what he has come to do. And so consider with me, first of all, this morning, the nature of Jesus, as we see clearly, more clearly than any other place in this point in the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ. Note verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. Once again, you pause right there for a moment. Once again, you notice that Jesus is in prayer. Now this, if you've been following Luke, our study of Luke, he is always emphasizing again and again the prayers of Jesus. In fact, whenever Luke tells us that Jesus is in prayer, it seems to me that something major is about to happen. Luke alone will tell us that it was at Jesus' baptism that he was in prayer. He will tell us again that when he's in temp being tempted, he was in prayer. He'll go on and say when he chose the twelve, he spent all night in prayer. We'll see further on in Luke 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory is revealed only in response to a time of prayer. And it's here again that we find Jesus in prayer. And so that could kind of alert us in the study of this gospel. Something major is about to happen. Something significant is about uh, to occur as we see in verse 18. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? What, what, what's the common understanding about me? What's the, what's the word on the street? 
Certainly people are talking. What, what are they saying about me? And the disciples go on and they give three answers. In fact, it's the exact same answers that was, were being battered around in Herod's court earlier in Luke chapter 9. Answer number one. You see this here in verse 19. And they answered John the Baptist. Right? Jesus sounds a lot like John the Baptist in some sense at least. He's constantly talking about the kingdom of God. He has a, a huge following, just as John the Baptist did. Maybe he's John the Baptist who's come back from the dead to, to exact his revenge. Another option was Elijah. You see that in verse 19. But others answered Elijah. Elijah keeps coming up. For the Bible told that he would come back again. He would be the forerunner of the Messiah. It was foretold in a number of passages. Uh, Malachi chapter 4 perhaps being the most famous. And it was the idea that before the Messiah would come, the, Elijah would come to get us ready for the Messiah. And so they think about Jesus. Well, maybe you're the forerunner. Maybe you've come to prepare us for the Messiah. In fact, Orthodox Jews still expect Elijah to come. In fact, every Passover they'll set out an empty table, an empty cup, in case Elijah decides to come and join them for dinner. And they expect that he's coming. And they thought, well, maybe, maybe you're him. Maybe you're Elijah. And well, there's a third answer that's more general. You see that in verse 19. And others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Perhaps you're Jeremiah. Maybe you're Moses. After all, you have reinterpreted the law for us. You have fed us heavenly bread in the wilderness. And so there's all these options about Jesus. It's interesting to me, too, there's no consensus, right? There's no agreement. We all believe you're this or we all believe you're that. And so there's all these different views about Jesus, but they all agree on one thing. He's amazing, right? He is, he is incredible. And you almost see the apostles coming to him. Lord, let me tell you, everyone is, thinks you're one of the great ones. Everyone thinks you're incredible. It almost seems to me very similar to today's understanding of Jesus. Of course, we may not come with the same conclusions that they did back then, but it seems today that everybody thinks highly of Jesus, right? He's still very popular, Everybody seems to like him, whether he's a wise teacher to listen to or virtuous example to follow. I mean, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of Muslims consider him to be a prophet of God, right? They will rank Jesus. You ask people on the street, they will rank Jesus very high on the list of most influential people. But he is still just, just one of the hundreds to them. See, they, they honor him. At the same time, they misrepresent him. They want to applaud him while at the same time deny who he really is. That's what seems to be going on here in Jesus. And he's clearly not satisfied, for he presses the point as he asks in verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? What is the apostles' understanding of Jesus? What do you believe? In the Greek, the you is in a place of priority. It's emphasized. Who do you think? Some say this, some say that. I don't care about that. I want to know what you think. And of course, they've had months of following him. They've watched him. They've listened to him. They certainly have been considering this, right? It's interesting that Jesus never comes out and says, okay, guys, Bible study time. I'm the Messiah. He wants to bring them along to form their own conclusions based upon what he is doing and how he is teaching. And they have been thinking about this certainly since the time he calmed the sea for they ask, who is this that can do such things? And finally, Jesus comes out and says, okay, have you guys reached a conclusion? Have you come up with something? He comes right out and asks. By the way, the you is plural. What do you all think about me? And of course, I, I don't know, but I could imagine there was quite a pause there. I could imagine that many of them were afraid to even share what was on their heart. Afraid to say what they're thinking. 
Well, everyone but one particular apostle who was never afraid to say what he's thinking. Of course, Peter answers, the Christ of God. And for once, Peter gets it right. Right? The true understanding of Jesus is he is the Christ of God. He is not simply another religious leader, certainly not simply someone who possesses an impressive personality. He's not even just another prophet. He is the Messiah. He has come to repair the brokenness in this world. He has come to redeem all the social and relational and financial and spiritual and physical problems in all this world. He has come to redeem us. He is not just a king. He is the king. They they look at Jesus. Peter looks at him and says, you are the one who is to come to put everything right. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Of course, we already knew that answer if we've been paying attention in Luke's gospel because Luke has been telling us over and over again. In fact, the angels announced it to the shepherds in Luke 2. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is what? Christ the Lord. It's been announced by the angels. It was foretold in the baptism as the Father speaks from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The devil announced it in the temptation. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Demons constantly testify it, crying out, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them because they knew that he was the Christ. Jesus implies it when he preaches in Nazareth, quoting from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has made me Messiah. You see, angels announced it. God declared it. The devil affirmed it. Demons feared it. Jesus implied it. But what are the people he came to save? What of humanity? What do they believe? Who do you say that I am? And you wonder if Peter, after spending a year or more with Jesus, he's watched him cure the sick and cleanse the leper. He's seen him rebuke the feverish and restore the paralytic and reverse deformities and raise the dead. He's seen sinners are received with Jesus. Tax collectors are called by Jesus. Enemies are loved. Prostitutes are defended. The unclean are embraced. The weeping are comforted. The lonely are welcomed. He's watched him minister to men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, old and young, obedient, repentant, powerful, and the possessed, centurion and servant. He's seen him act with great power across great distance. He's seen him defeat an army of demons with but a word. He's ruled the storm. He's created bread. He's confounded Pharisees. He's interpreted the law of God. He's warned of disobedience to his word. He's been born of a virgin. He's been uh, blessed by the angels, baptized by the prophet, anointed by the spirit, extolled by the father. He's in the lineage of David. He's the descendant of Abraham. He's a son of Adam. He's rebuked the proud. He's lifted up the humble. He's created a new family. He's resisted temptation. He's kept the law. We've seen you forgive those who trust in you. You've announced that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. We've watched you pray to the father, listened to you, teach the scripture, heard you proclaim again and again that you have brought the good news of the kingdom of God. And he considers all that he had seen and all that he had heard and all that he knew and suddenly it became clear to him for the first time a human adds his voice saying you are the Christ you are the Messiah you are the King of Kings you are the promised one who is to come you are our long awaited deliverer you are the Christ of God he says what do you think how would you answer that question? 
If Jesus were to ask you today, who, who do you say that I am? How would you answer? I found a, in my research for this sermon, I, I found a poll, a recent poll that said, I found this fascinating, 85% of Americans say they believe in Jesus. Isn't that extraordinary? I thought it'd be like eight. Right? And what that means, if you travel the country and you ask four out of five people, do you believe in Jesus? They would tell you, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. But I kind of wonder what it is they believe about Jesus. Right? I, I mean, I, I, wa- I wonder if a more important question is, who is this Jesus in whom you believe in? Because I wonder, just as in Jesus' day, the answer would be, would greatly vary. You see, it's, it's not simply that we have to believe in Jesus. We actually must believe in who Jesus is. Right? And I believe who, who you say Jesus is will determine everything about your life. Certainly will determine everything about the interaction you have with him. For if you think Jesus is simply a good teacher, you'll occasionally listen to what he has to say, won't you? If you think he's a virtuous example, you, you might follow his life. If you think he's eminently wise, you'll go to him in times of confusion. But if you believe Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he's come to save us from sin and reign over us as Lord, then everything changes. After all, what do you do with a king? Right? How do you interact with a king? You certainly don't go to a king for advice, or you might, but that's not the primary interaction. You don't, certainly just don't look at a king for an example. And, and you, you certainly don't treat, as Brian, I think, po- pointed out, you certainly don't treat a king like a servant. What do you do with a king? You go to him and you get down on your knees and surrender to a king. You put your sword at his feet and say, I am in your service. That is called repentance, submission, faith. You see, you have to accept Jesus for how he really is. Now, of course, he is a good teacher, isn't he? And he is a wonderful example. And he is the embodiment of wisdom. But he's more than that. He's the Christ. He's the king. He's the Messiah. And you cannot accept him as a good teacher or uh, uh, the embodiment of wisdom. Or you can't even accept him as one who will help you in times of trouble unless you accept him first as Christ. You either accept all of him or none of him. It'd be like if you said to me, hey, you know, come on over, Stephen, but stay out, Karn. Right? By by the way, that's my name, Stephen Karn, in case you don't know. And so you said, come on in, Stephen, stay out, Karn. I would be confused what to do. Because I'm all Stephen... And I'm all Karn. I, I, don't, I don't know how to separate them. You can't separate. If you won't have Karn, you won't get Stephen. Right? If, if, if you don't accept Karn, you can't accept me. And some people say to Jesus, come into my life and I will follow you as a teacher. Come into my life and I will follow you as an example. In fact, some pe- many people say, even in the church, come into my life and I will, I will let you forgive my sins. As if that's gracious of you. Or uh, come into my life and, and answer my prayers and solve my problems and fix my relationships and make my life easy and, and good and prosperous. But they never make him as king. And there are countless of people that are frustrated with Jesus because they think he's supposed to follow them around and solve their problems and they don't understand that they are to bow their knee to him. You cannot say to him, come in as my savior, stay out, Lord. You cannot say, come helper, but stay out Christ. It will never work. You know, the uh, distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. I'd say uh, that, that distance is the width of this paper. This paper's width represents 92 million miles. 
If that's the case, if you wanted to measure the diameter of the galaxy, it would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Our atmosphere ends about seven miles from the surface of the earth. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, holds it all together with the word of his power. It tells us that he spoke it into existence. Now, my question for you, is that the type of person that you ask to be your personal assistant? Is that the person that you say, come when I call, do what I say, bless me where I want to be blessed, you follow my plan, you do what I want? Is that the type of person you say, okay, you have to come and fix all my problems? It will never work that way. He fixes problems, there's no doubt. But he must be your king. He must be your Lord. Who do you say that I am? There's one answer he'll accept. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised king. I wonder, friends, do you believe that? Do you believe that he is the Christ? Your life will show it. How you respond to him, how you follow him, it will be evident. In fact, one day, everyone will realize it. You know that? But one day there will be a universal wide ranking of Jesus, and he's not coming in third. Right? The Lord, the Father, has exalted him in the highest place and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone one day will recognize who he is, but that day will be too late. He longs for us to come now, to submit now. You are the Christ. And he says, you're right. I am. I am the king who's been promised. Now, when they say that you're the Christ, when they say that you're the Messiah, by the way, Messiah is simply the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ. Same word, two languages. When they say you're the Messiah, what they understand is you are a political ruler. You are the son of David. You've come to reestablish David's throne. So when Jesus affirms this response, they're they're thinking Jesus is saying, I'm here to rule. I'm here to restore Israel. And this got to be very exciting for them. They got a little time to celebrate, right? Because the Messiah is finally here and he's going to establish his throne and and we're with him. And and there got to be a lot of joy rising up in their heart. If there was, that celebration did not last long because he says, yes, I am the king, but I am nothing like the king you expect. As we turn to secondly and quickly, the work of Christ. We see here in verses 21 and verse 22 that the Christ must die. Note verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, he says. I'm going to talk about a downer, right? Yes, I'm the Christ. Yes, I'll deliver you. Yes, I will establish my throne. But I have to be killed first. And this creates an unimaginable amount of confusion in their mind. I mean, they must, this is probably, the, of all the infinite things he could have followed up this statement with, this would have been the last thing they expected him to hear. What do you mean? It doesn't make sense. In fact, Peter and the other count will immediately rebuke him for this, saying this can't be true. And when he died on the cross, you know what they said to him? Um, They said, if you're the Christ, come down from here, right? They scoffed at him. It never occurred to them that this could actually happen. Mark tells us that they did not understand because they were afraid to ask him. And so he has to continually tell them, I have to die. I have to die. I I must be killed. And they don't understand. Now, it's hard for us to appreciate their confusion because the crucifixion is so central to our message. But but they, they didn't expect it at all. In fact, look at verse 21. He strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, right? They are sworn to secrecy about this because they don't get it yet. 
They don't understand. It'd be like a parent giving instructions to a kid, and before you finish, they run off to do it. And they, they would do it incorrectly. It wouldn't get done right. And so he says, okay, now it's just, now we got this established. You need to watch me. You need to listen to me. You need to not tell anyone. By the way, you are not sworn to secrecy. Okay? Right? So after the resurrection, he goes, tell everyone. Right? So are, are you telling everyone? That's what we do, but from the confession to the crucifixion, we can't talk about this to anyone. And he begins to teach them. And he says, just watch me. Just listen to me. And he goes on there in verse 22. He says, let me tell you, the Son of Man will be killed. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by the leadership in Israel, elders, priests, scribes, all turn against me, and I'll be killed. I'll be nailed to a cross they're left to die a slow, painful, bloody, God-forsaken death. That is what's going to happen to me. And they just didn't get it. In fact, the Old Testament promises this would happen. It does so in this mysterious figure called the, the suffering servant. He's mostly described in the book of Isaiah. And they said there's a servant coming that will suffer. Of course, there's many promises about the Messiah. And the Messiah is always told that he's going to reign and rule and and establish justice and so forth. And it never occurred to anyone that the Messiah and the suffering servant were the same person. right? Because the Messiah is to come and end evil and injustice. But how do you end evil and injustice by being killed? It doesn't make sense. The Messiah is supposed to go to Jerusalem and defeat all evil and injustice by going to a throne. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to defeat all evil and injustice by going to a cross. I'm the Son of Man. I'm, I'm the Christ. I'm the King. But I'm a King on a cross. And you couldn't get something more opposite to a throne than a cross. I mean, a cross is, is this helpless, shameful way to die. All other forms of execution afford some type of dignity. The cross, you are naked from head to toe. You are hoisted up on a pole. You die slowly, painfully, as people gawk you, spit on you, throw things at you. I mean, he's the exact opposite of the cross. And he says the Son of Man will be killed. In fact, he says more than that, doesn't he? He says the Son of Man must be killed. Do you see that there in verse 21? This must happen. It's not I've come to die, but I have to die. I have to be killed. Right? He, this is what he must do. We found him at age 12 in the temple. He told his mom... I must be about my father's business. I have a mission. When he's at Gethsemane, he will refuse the help of men and angels, saying, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? You see, the death of Jesus did not kill the mission. It was the mission. I must die. Why? Well, he must die because he has come to seek and to save the lost. It's come to save people who have turned their back upon God and lived their life according to their own standards, according to their own plans. The people who have rejected God as God and done their own thing. The Bible calls that sin. It calls us wayward. We all like sheep have gone our own way. We've gone away from God. And God, because he is good and just and holy, will punish all sin, will punish all law-breaking. And he could either punish us or he could punish one who will take our place. Jesus has said, I will take your place. I will die upon the cross. I will bear the wrath of God that you may avoid the wrath of God. I'm going to Jerusalem not to take power, but to lose it. I'm going to Jerusalem not to rule, but to serve. I'm going to Jerusalem not to reign, but to die. And that is how I will save you. I must die. But of course, that's not the end of Christ, is it? As we see lastly here, 
he finishes verse 22 and it says, on the third day be raised. So how do we know it worked? I mean, anybody could say, I'm going to die on a cross and pay for the sins of mankind. You could say that. I could say that. How do we know it works? Well, it's only when someone says, I will come back from the dead and not in some uncertain future and in some uncertain way, but three historical days, bodily, historically, actually, I will rise from the dead and you shall see me. He would be crucified and then be raised. And because Christ is raised, we know for certain that the Father has accepted the payment for our sins and that he will give mercy to those who call upon him. If you were to call upon him today, friend, if you would say, God, give me mercy, he would shower you with mercy beyond your imagination because of the work of Christ. And is that mercy and that grace that one day will heal all our diseases, will liberate us from all oppression, will give us the ability to enjoy peace with all who live with him, will be freed from all sin, will be transformed into the image of Christ, will be included with people from all nations, and we will live in a place of delight for eternity. And as wonderful as all that is, there's more. Because the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, you know what, bring us to God. That's what he has come to do. He has come to bring us to God. He has come to die and be raised as the Messiah that we might be reconciled to a holy God, that we might be washed clean of our rebellion and know the one for whom we are made. He is what you are looking for. The place of joy, purpose, peace, delight is found in knowing the one who has made us. And Christ has come to do this work. He's come to invite all who would come to him that they too might be brought to God. It is not by your righteous works that you are saved. It is by the mercy in which Christ has purchased. Friend, if you are here today and you do not know Christ, would you not come? Why would you not come? Why would you say no to him? He who has done all the work for you. And for those of us who have received that work, I think it would be fitting for us to rejoice in it today. Can we celebrate this meal together as we remember the death and resurrection of our Lord Can you, when you hold the elements in your hand, can you contemplate and pray and rejoice in the fact that the righteous has suffered for the unrighteous, has died for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God in this life and forevermore. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for the work of our Lord. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. And we thank you that he has showered us with mercy because of his grace through our faith. And now we want to remember it as we are instructed. We want to rejoice in it through this supper meal. Will you help us, Father? Minister to our hearts as we surround this table, Father, and we take these elements and we delight in the work of Jesus. And Father, will you help us even now as your word instructs to search our own hearts as we pray silently that we might turn over sin in our lives that we might repent of anything in our hearts, any wicked act or wayward thought, that we might come to this meal with a clean conscience in awe of your grace. Help us as we search ourselves even now.